Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Our teaching today will be based on Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter of Timothy, chapter 6, and we will read from verse 2, part B, up to verse 11. So first Timothy, chapter 6, and we will look at verse 2, part B, up to verse 11. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines, and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin. And destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, O man of God, flee from all this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That was up to verse 12. The Apostle Paul is writing to young Timothy and once again he is reminding him of the things that he needed to teach in order to guide God's people in proper biblical worship and Christian living. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul opens up reminding Timothy how he needs to continue in the sound teaching of the Word of God. And in this passage especially, the Apostle Paul talks about false teachers and their love of money. He reminds young Timothy why it is important to be content, especially because of what Christ has done in his life. He reminds him and gives him the reasons why God's people should not focus on riches? When you look at verse 7, he reminds them that we came in this world with nothing and we surely will go out of this world with nothing. But he also tells young Timothy the alternative lifestyle that Christians should adopt and how they should live, especially by reminding him how he needs to pursue godliness, how he needs to pursue contentment, how he needs to pursue godly character and disciplines. You will agree with me, brothers, that a message like this is rare in our times. And quite frankly, the preacher who chooses to faithfully Proclaim such a kind of message will not be popular, will not have many followers, because today we live in times 
where people are looking for preachers who preach what their itching ears want to hear. Today we are hearing different attractive and popular messages, especially from television preachers about how you can succeed in life, how you can get more wealth, how you can live without being sick, how you can conquer and overcome all your enemies. And these messages truly sound very appealing. The question, however, is, are they biblical? Should God's people really believe and stand in these teachings? Or should God's people listen to Paul as he instructs young Timothy to find guidance for their lives today? As we talk about this subject of false teachings, we want to especially focus on one popular movement which I believe that most of you already know about or at least have even sat under teachings from certain men and women who have been propagating these teachings. And this movement is what we know as the Word Faith Movement, a movement which was begun about the late 19th century and early 20th century in the United States. The movement has gained a lot of popularity in the late 20th century through television preachers like Kenneth Copeland, T.L. Osborne, Morissero, Ben Heen, the famous T.D. Jakes, Miles Munro, Crefel Dora, to mention but a few. And of course, as you well know, Africa itself has not been immune. We have our own African television preachers, people like Chris Oyaklahome of Christ Embassy, we have Robert Kayanja of Miracle Center, we have Simon Kaiwa of Namirembe Christian Fellowship, we have people like David Oedepo, all the way from Nigeria. We have Winners Chapel right here. We have churches like the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God. And of course, not to forget TBN Africa and many others. So the movement is right here, growing at a very fast pace. The question, however, is, are they teaching the Word of God? Much as the themes sound popular, the themes sound desirable, are they really biblical? So what are some of these key teachings that they espouse? And what makes it important for us to understand these teachings and especially to understand them in light of biblical teaching? For instance, some of the teachings they will want to bring to your attention will include where they get their authority for preaching this kind of message. They will want to teach you about faith as the prerequisite for getting whatever you will ever need in life. Then you will have the popular teaching of prosperity, the gospel of health and wealth. Once you are a Christian, you are entitled to good health, you are entitled to material well-being, and in some instances or extreme cases, you are even told not to be rich is actually a curse. So, in their teaching, as a Christian, you have every right to have everything you need to never be sick, and this is looked at as a right. But also, fourthly, they have another teaching that they call seed faith, and we will look at it in a moment. So when it comes to authority, what is it that they teach or that they claim about this authority? Well, word faith preachers will always tell you that they get their authority from the word of God. And indeed, if you have listened to them, you notice that they quote the Bible almost all the time, all over the place. The challenge, however, is that they always quote this Bible out of context. 
An interesting story, I remember one time attending a certain service where the pastor rose up and read from John 3.16. And uh, he read and said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. But then as he was reading John 3.16, he did not complete the passage. He only stopped at, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and then stopped there. Then he asked the church members, How many of you really love the Lord? And as you can imagine, all arms were in air. And then he said, I want you to demonstrate your love for God. When God so loved the world, how did he show his love? He gave his only. So now that you claim you love the Lord, how are you going to demonstrate your love? You must give your only. And now I want to ask you friends, how much is only? Only could be 1,000 shillings. Only could be 10,000. Only could be 5 million. Only could be your land. Only could be your own car. And as you can imagine, so many people flock to the pulpit to give their only. Unfortunately, I don't know what could have happened, but most likely there are some who gave in their everything. And since then, life has not been like it was before for them. But does John 3.16 really talk about giving? So here is a case where the pastor reads from the Bible, which is truly the word of God, reads a verse which is in a context of a message about salvation, about being born again, and he applies it to mean giving, and eventually calls people to give their only and their all, and eventually he freezes them of their precious belongings. Yes, they will use the Bible, but they will quote it out of context. They will make it say what they have already decided that the Bible should say. And that is why we need to be careful, brothers and sisters. It is not enough to quote the Bible, but you want to always ask yourself, are they reading the Bible rightly? Are they quoting it rightly? Are they considering the context of the word of God? And if they have read it rightly, what is the interpretation? If they have interpreted it rightly, have they applied it rightly? Because so many people these days will claim to use the Bible and indeed will read it, but the application from the Bible will be far different from what their conclusion will be. We have several passages that they have misquoted. And another one would be from Third John, verse 2, where the Apostle John writes and says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Now you can see that the verse mentions spiritual growth, it mentions health and prosperity. But this verse does not say that a person will grow in prosperity and health. And in fact, if you look at it closely, John is addressing a certain person, Gaius. And if you look at the language of the verse, the language is one of prayer. It's not one of decree. It's not one of command. John is not saying, you must prosper. No, the apostle John is saying, I pray that you may. Meaning that this is an attitude of prayer. And God still has the right to answer this prayer or not. But word faith preachers will get this verse and they will say, You see how it is your right to be prosperous? Do you see how God owes it to you for your soul to prosper? 
But this is not what the verse says. Once again, they have taken it out of context. They have used it to say what they have already decided should be said. And they have misled God people, God's people. Very, very important to always look at the context of the passages and especially see the spirit with which this passage is interpreted. But secondly, we also said that one of the things that are worth looking at is how they understand faith and how they use it in their teachings. According to what faith movement, faith can mean positive confession, it can mean the power of words, it can mean the power of the tongue. So for some word faith teachers, faith is really a powerful, creative, and I would also add magical force by which you can get your heart's desires as long as you believe that something will happen and you speak it into existence. The point in case is, supposing I have a broken arm, the, the solution is simple. All I need is to believe that my hand is already healed, even when I still feel pain. Step number two is to confess it against everything I feel. So I need to walk around saying, my hand is not broken, my hand is healed, my hand is okay. And as I positively confess and believe that actually I am healed, then it is said that eventually I get healed. Of course you will all agree with me that that is mere fantasy and very absurd. Now, but that is not what is more absurd. Do you know what is more absurd? In the event that you get healed, let's say God divinely intervenes and he heals you. Guess what happens? The pastor takes the credit, the man of God. In fact, he gets your pictures and begins using you wherever he stages a crusade. And he says, do you see how I prayed for this man's broken arm and he got healed? Now he becomes the man of God who restores broken arms. He takes the glory. But what happens in the event that you are not healed? The pastor does not take the blame. You are blamed either for lack of enough faith. You are blamed for not fulfilling certain things for your healing. Maybe you didn't pray enough or you didn't fast enough or you didn't give to God enough or your faith was very little or you have some ancestral curses that hinder your miracle from being affected. They will find every reason and excuse to blame you for your failing to be healed. But if you are healed, then the glory goes to the man of God. I hope you can see the double standard in that kind of situation. The arm is healed, glory to the pastor. The arm is not healed, you, the one with the broken arm, is to blame. You should have prayed more, you should have fasted more. Very serious double standards. When they use the word faith, they are not saying, have faith in the Lord Jesus, and then the following will take place in your life. What they actually mean is that all you need is to believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that something is going to happen and it surely will because you have obeyed the two-step rule. But what is this faith anchored in? Is it faith in the Lord Jesus? Or is it faith in me? Or is it faith in my words? And most of them, they will tell you that it is what you say. So it's about you. You are not even praying and saying, God, would you please intervene in my crisis? No, 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 no. You are confessing it's all about you and what you say. Just believe it and confess it. So it's more like this is exercising faith in faith. But what does the word of God say? Does the word of God say we should have faith in ourselves? 
or in our words or in our confessions. No. We have faith in the Lord Jesus. A case in point is in Matthew where two blind men come and beg Jesus for mercy. And Jesus asks them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they reply. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, it will be done to you. And their sight was restored. According to your faith. But faith in who? In Jesus. Jesus begins asking them, Do you believe I am able to do this? Are you sure that your faith is anchored in me and in my ability to restore your sight? And they are healed, not because they confessed it, but because they have expressed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But thirdly, one of the other teachings that they will always promote, and which I think is worth looking into, is what we call prosperity. The teaching that there is abundance of health and wealth for those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Though what faith teachers usually emphasize health and wealth, they will sometimes even stretch it further to say that prosperity is about every part of life. I have heard one of the word faith preachers saying that there are about 4,000 promises that are given in the scriptures and he says all of them belong to you, all of them. Meaning from Genesis to Revelation, whatever promise God has ever given to anyone, you can safely claim it to be your own. Now one thing that I always find interesting is the double standard again applied in this. There are so many promises indeed that God has given in the scriptures. But you know those promises are not all necessarily positive. Some are negative. In some instances he's saying, if you obey me and seek my face and be faithful, I promise to do the following. But in some other instances he's saying, if you will not obey me and obey my commandments and you run after other gods and you do this with the neighboring nations, then the following will happen to you. Now what is interesting is that word faith teaching will quickly grab the positive promises but will disregard the negative ones. So they are quick to say every promise in the Bible belongs to you until you read the one that talks about exile and then they will say ah no 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 that one is talking about the nation of Israel. But if you talk about some positive promise they say ah, that is for everyone who believes. Again, double standards, which we need to watch out for. According to them, they will want to teach you that God created everything in the world for us to enjoy. Although according to Colossians 1 verse 16, we are told that God created everything for himself and for his glory, not really for us. In their teaching, health and resources exist in the spirit world, but are waiting for us also. So we are responsible to bring them into existence. What this means is that if you are a Christian and you are living in poverty, partly you are to blame, if not all through. Reason being, all the goodies that you are supposed to enjoy are in the spiritual realm. Why haven't you claimed them? It is your fault that you are poor. The things are there, all you need is to take a series of certain prescribed steps by the word faith teachers and you should be able to get whatever you need. If you are poor, it's because you have not done something and you are to blame. But again, for you to claim these things that are already waiting for in the spirit world, you don't need to pray. 
They will teach you that to do so, you need not ask God for them, because He has already provided them. So asking God for them would imply that you do not believe His promises. One time I was listening on TV and the Pastor Chris of Christ Embassy was preaching. And he was talking about this passage where Jesus said that faith as little as a mustard seed, you can command a mountain to fall into the sea and it will be so. And Pastor Chris said that you see, if you have a mountain or say an obstacle in your life, which would be compared to this mountain that Jesus was talking about, you don't need to beg God to move the mountain for you. You already have the power in you that can move the mountain. So don't waste time asking God just to go, go, command the mountain, tell whatever obstacle in your life to get out of your life and it will be so. Now you see, once you begin thinking that way, then you are left wondering, so where is the place of God? If the authority now resides in me, I'm the one who decides what happens to me, where and when, I no longer need to consult God or depend on Him for anything, then where is God? In essence, I have become God. So when we think about what faith teaching, we are actually looking at a system that has dethroned God. This is like a spiritual coup. Man has sat on the throne of God and now he seeks to be God and to do whatever is according to his will. They also will tell you that for you to get these things that are in the spiritual realm, you need to speak faith-filled words using the power of the tongue to bring what you want from the spirit world into the physical. And I think we have already talked about this, where they believe that as long as you believe, you confess something into existence, it must happen. Not because God has willed it, but because you have confessed. So once again, they are saying, the power is within you, it's up to you, it's not about God. Which is very unfortunate and a very sad teaching, I must say. They will teach you that healing and financial provision are rights. But as you remember, the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, when he talks about the state of the spirit and the physical body. And he says that though our outward man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. This goes along with our experience in this life. The natural cause is that our bodies are falling apart, but our spirits are being renewed. Scripture also teaches us that complete healing will take place, yes, but not in this life, in heaven. If you read First Corinthians chapter 15, from verses 42 to 43, it describes how our current bodies are perishable, sown in dishonor and weakness. But the Apostle Paul tells us that our resurrection bodies will be imperishable and they will be sown in glory and power. So as we live in the here and now, in the limitations of human existence, we are bound to perish, we are bound to be weak, our bodies are sown in dishonor, news that most word faith teachers will not want here. But the truth remains that while in this world, sickness and disease will always be part of this life because we live in a broken society. We live in a sinful world. And until we are fully and finally redeemed and taken away from the presence of this sinful, wretched, broken world, sickness and diseases abound. That is the truth of the scripture. 
We need to understand that God is concerned about providing for his people financially and for health concerns. However, obtaining these blessings is about asking God for them and being in relationship with him. It's not about us. We don't get things because we bubble out certain so-called faith-filled words. But because it has pleased the Lord that he should bless us with them as we respond and depend on him daily in prayer. We also must remember that God is sovereign. He is not the kind who is twisted by our confession and our faith. But he is a God who is sovereign in charge of the small and the big, majestic in power, and therefore one that we do not order around in the name of faith. Very, very important to understand. The Bible speaks of this as well. When it reminds us of how frail and how finite human beings are, We must always remember that we are not the creator. We are the creatures. He is the creator. There is a big difference between the creator and the creature. And quite often word faith teaching seems to lift man up to the level of the creator as if we were partners in this and we can all decide what happens in this universe. Something that is very absurd. Something that I would think is even an illusion. And as Christians who are called to be humble, to acknowledge our place in God's purpose, to acknowledge God's sovereignty, and live in all of his name, we must always remember our place so that God is given the glory that befits him. Word faith, in summary, is a movement that offers a false emphasis on anointed men and women as God's special messengers. In this system or in this belief, the pastors are looked at as if they were assistant God. It's like blessing and cursing of the members is dependent upon their relationship with the pastor, which is really not biblical. Remember what First Timothy 2.5 tells us? There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. And that man is not the pastor. That man is the man Jesus Christ. Word faith movement offers a false hope for perfect health and continuous prosperity, most of which these things are not realistic in such a sinful world as ours. It offers a false understanding of God's purposes for suffering. It offers a false view of our power to control the universe through our words and our will. It offers a false understanding of God and his sovereignty. It offers a false expectation of sowing and tithing as though they were guarantees of financial gain. It offers a false emphasis on worldly success as if worldly success and material gain were the ultimate goal of life. And we must shun these things, especially as we remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 from verses 11b to 12. He says that I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. We must also remember the sober words of Jesus. When he asks a question and he says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul in eternal hell? What would it profit to run after material gain, to run after miracles, to run after the goodies of this passing away world? 
without even remembering that all these things at the end of the day have an expiry date. What will it profit a man? The Apostle Paul gives his charge to young Timothy and he says, But you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you as you ponder on this eternal truth. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.